Well, as we move into my message today, I want to uh, think about this time and season of the year. 23 days from now, something's going to happen. Do kids know what's going to happen 23 days from now? Anybody know Nathan? You always know what's going to happen. Thanksgiving is not quite, not quite. That's more like uh, maybe 38 days from now. But yes, 20. The elections are going to come, right? The first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And uh, we are going to, um, those who are 18 and up, go to the polls and vote for our representative. What a a great country that we can vote actually for those who lead us and guide us. If we don't like them, we can vote them out. Uh, How unlike that is the Rome in which the New Testament lived. Um, The Roman emperor was sovereign over everything. He couldn't depose him. And many of them were tyrants opposed to Christianity. But for us, we can vote. I encourage you to do that. As a result, though, of this uh, fast approaching election in 23 days, we've seen various debates among the major party candidates. Uh, a week and a half ago was uh, the presidential debate. Last week was a vice presidential debate. And there are two more presidential debates coming up. One on Tuesday and another the, the Monday after that. And in these debates, questions are asked. And the questions can range from lots of different topics, from taxes to domestic policy to foreign policy to economy to ideology and just all across the, the spectrum. And, and in a debate, one of the things that you want to see happen is, first of all, your candidate to do well, to come across as someone who's kind and gracious and someone who knows the issues and can put forth his, his case. And second, you'd love to see your opponent mess up, right? Some kind of verbal gaffe that's said or some kind of way that they... They mess up. Those are the things that that you want. And depending upon the results of the debate, the political winds may swing one way or the other. Um, It's just what is at stake. Now, as we come to our our text this morning, we see a political debate of sorts, though it's not so much a debate between two parties as much as more of an inquisition. Jesus is on the hot seat and the religious leaders are firing questions at Him. And they aren't coming to Him as a desire to know more about Jesus, rather than coming to Him as a desire to trap Him, to catch Him in something that He might say a little bit wrong, and thereby they want to sway the political winds of the day so as to ultimately destroy Jesus in what He said. And yet we see Jesus, of course, as always with great skill, turning away the political desires of His adversaries. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Our text this morning begins at verse 13. We're going to proceed through verse 27. I want to read the text for you. You can see the questions coming there. And they were seeking to seize Him. And yet, they feared the people, for they understood He spoke the parable against them, so they left Him and went away. And then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial to anybody, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, 
Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up the children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. You can see the two questions that are asked of him. The first question, verse 14, um, 15, has to do with taxes. Should we pay the poll tax or not? The, the long-winded question in verses 19 through 23 have all to do with the, the resurrection. And, and these aren't the only questions that were, were asked of Jesus. In fact, if you look over in chapter 11, verse 28, they began saying to Him, by what authority are you doing these things? There's a question of authority. Or chapter 12, 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized He'd answered them well, asked Him, what commandment is the foremost of all? I mean, just being drilled with all of these questions. Just boom, 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 boom. And if anything, all of these passages hold together really with the theme of trying to, trying to trap Jesus in His answers. In fact, that's why the Pharisees and Herodians came to Him. Look at verse 13. They came to Him in order to trap Him. That's why they're asking Him so many questions. That's why they, they wanted to, to trap Him. They wanted to see Jesus make a verbal gaffe. But Jesus, the God-man, was always up to the task. Well, my first point this morning is taxes. question about taxes and trying to trip Jesus up. It's a timely subject for this election season. Nothing stirs people more heavily than taxes. All you need to do is start talking about them and people you know, start feeling the weight in their checkbooks and start resisting. And that's what they were trying to do, raise something about the, the taxes. Now, you can see how desperate they are in trying to trap Jesus in a question by who they bring. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians come to ask Jesus a question. Now, you know, the Pharisees and the Herodians were like enemies with each other. They were on the, the far ends of the political spectrum. The Herodians, as the name Herod implies, were pro-government. They were those who held government positions, maybe, they were those who supported Herod. On the flip side, then you have the Pharisees who were anti-government. They hated Rome with a passion. They hated Herod and wanted to see the politics dissolve. They wanted to see Rome uh, gone out of the way. They wanted their freedom as Israel again. Now, these guys are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. So when you think about them, don't think about Republican and Democrat. Republican and Democrat will always vie for that middle vote. Okay, They're, they're pretty close. But these are more like communist and libertarian, right? The communist is big government, let the government take care of anything, right? Just like the Herodians. And the libertarians over here, little government, let us have our freedom. That's more the, the case of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and yet they come together. How is it these enemies come together? 
because they have a, a common enemy. Jesus is their common enemy. And they want to maintain the status quo because the Herodians got a pretty big gig, good gig going. They've got power. They've got authority. They've got some control. And everything's okay. They just want to make sure that things are okay. And so as Jesus stirs the pot politically, they don't want that. They want to, to keep that calm. And the Pharisees, likewise, have their nice little religious system going. They have power and influence. Maybe not everything's like they want it to be, like they got the Romans over there, but at least the Romans give them some semblance of freedom to help them and to um, give them some power. They didn't like that either. They don't want a revolution. They don't want um, Jesus disrupting the boat. And so they came to Jesus in verse 14 with this question. They said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or not pay? Well, they preface their question with flattery. Oh, teacher, we know that you're, you're truthful and you defer to nobody. You're not partial in any way, but you teach the way of God in truth. Here it is, teacher, we know, Jesus, that you are truthful and you speak it forth, and so we really want to know this answer to this question. They weren't wanting an answer. They wanted to trap him. Proverbs 29, verse 5, tells us exactly like it is. A man who flatters with his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. You build someone up, it could be because you're looking to trap him in the net. And that is exactly what they were doing, flattering for the purpose of setting a net. And Jesus could see this a mile away. The enemy comes and begins to sweet talk you. Ding, 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 ding. Trouble's brewing. There's something else going on there. Jesus wasn't fooled. That's why Mark adds in verse 15 that Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? He knew their hypocrisy. He knew that they were just trying to test him and to trap him. Over the years of pastoring, I've seen similar things. People have been angry with me. People have been angry with the direction of the church. People have come with some concern. And uh, whereas once they used to call me Steve, which is totally fine with me. You can call me Steve. You don't have to call me Pastor Steve. That's what my parents call me. That's good enough. That's okay. And uh, they call me Steve all the time, but then when there's trouble brewing and they want me on the side, you know what they start calling me? Pastor Steve. Right? Emails that say Pastor Steve on them. I'm like, ding, 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 ding. Something's changed here. What's changed? Well, a little flattery before the, the net is spread to try to trap. I've seen it more than once, and I know I'll see it again. So be consistent in what you call me, okay? <laughs> Well, in Jesus' day, the, the trap had to do with a poll tax. They said again in verse 14, Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or not pay? Now, this poll tax was um, the denarius that every man owed the Roman government. Every adult male in Judea paid this tax once every year and went right into the imperial treasury. Now, the Pharisees hated this tax. I mean, with, with a passion. It's not so much that the tax was large and excessive because it wasn't. It's only a day's wage for a common labor. Maybe $100, maybe $150, maybe $200 equivalent today. And just once a year, that tax wasn't so bad. But it was the thought of paying the tax was an admission of the Roman right to rule over them. And as they hated the Roman rule, they hated paying this particular tax. And they had to pay for the tax using a denarius, a coin that represented a day's wage. And uh, 
they had an image of Caesar on the cone on the coin, and they it bore the image of the emperor who ascribed divinity to himself and claimed all power, both both physically, politically, and spiritually as well. And to use that coin, they thought, was tantamount to emperor worship. So they hated that coin. The tax signified all these things to the Jews. And so there was great discussion about whether this tax should be paid or not. Though they did pay, but it was with some protest that they paid. They'd been paying it for 30-some-odd years. And in fact, do you remember the circumstances behind the birth of Jesus? Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, Nazareth up in the north. And, and, and even though she was pregnant, she was on a, a donkey bouncing around all the way down to Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem. And why did they go down there? Because Quirinius had set up to have a census taken. Do you know why he had a census taken? So he could impose the poll tax. So he figured out how many people there are so that he could put this tax on people. And, and shortly after this census was taken, a man named Judas of Galilee, not the same Judas who betrayed Jesus, though perhaps a grandfather or father, there's some sus- suspicion about that, he led an insurrection against Rome in light of this tax. He claimed that taxation is no better than downright slavery. Sounds like Patrick Henry, right? Give me liberty or give me death. And Patrick soon met his death as the Romans quelched the revolt. This question had been going on for many years and it was a modern day debate. Should we pay this tax or not? In fact, that's exactly why the Herodians were, were present. They were pro-government people, the authority of the government on their side, and they may well have had the authority if Jesus had said, no, let's not pay that tax, because against the pagan country there that's, that's over us, the Herodians may well have arrested him right then and there and taken him away like they did Judas of Galilee some 30 years before. The laws of the land said the tax must be paid. So I hope you see why this question was asked. Jesus decided with the, the Pharisees and protesting the tax would bring trouble from the Herodians. But Jesus siding with the Herodians and saying to pay this tax would get him in trouble with the people because the populace of the people hated those taxes. As do Americans today. We hate paying our taxes. But the trap had been set. And now we're going to see, we're going to wait on, on Jesus' words to see whether he would be caught in in the trap. And so the response of Jesus was amazing. He said, uh, bring with me, bring me a denarius to look at. So I'm going to start with an object lesson. He asked for someone to bring him such a coin. Now, we can kind of bring it to present today. The, a denarius was about the size of a dime or a penny. Um, but like, does anyone have a quarter here? You guys cash list. Does anyone have a quarter? Kids, you have a quarter? Do we have one? This is what Jesus saying, right? You have a quarter? Yes, Steve. Thank you. We got a, we got a quarter. And so, Jesus would have, would have taken this quarter, right? And He would have, have looked at it. And, and so, He asked a question, right? You remember the question He asked? It's right there. In the, what do you ask? Whose inscription is on this? Okay, kids. Whose inscription is on a quarter? Okay. Not this quarter. Caesar's been long dead, not this quarter. Yes, McKaylee. George Washington's picture. Whose picture's on here? George Washington. And so, what did Jesus say? Render to Washington the things that are Washington's. 
and to God the things that are God. Now, he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. But to bring it into context, he said, render to Washington the things that are Washington. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Now, what's, what's amazing about this coin is it you got a picture of it there in your kids' notes. On, on the front side of it, had this image of Caesar on it. Okay? And, and in fact, even it says about Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The coin itself even lifts up Augustus as being divine. And if you look on the, the back of that coin, had Caesar Augustus sitting on his throne with a, kind of in a, a priestly way. And even on the back it said, Pontiff Maxim, the highest priest. The coin itself signified that, that, that Caesar himself was sovereign and the ruler over all things politically and spiritually. Here you go, Steve. Thank you. And so you think about what Jesus responded when He said, Render to Washington the things that are Washington's and to God the things that are God's. We've heard this so many times, we're not amazed with it. But think about all the things that took place when He said that. Jesus was clear enough to give a clear answer to the question, but He was vague enough so as not to offend both parties. He averted the wrath of the Herodians because he didn't denounce the tax. And he averted the wrath of the Pharisees because he put the tax in perspective. He affirmed the paying of the taxes, but he took it out of Caesar's realm. He, but he took Caesar out of the divine realm, rather, by distinguishing Caesar and God, right? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but to God the things that are God. Those are different separating those two things, thereby saying that you can do one thing to God, you can do another thing to Caesar. He affirmed the role of government in our lives. He affirmed the proper honor to give to our governmental leaders. And yet, He pressed in a far greater way, when you start talking about taxes, He, he pressed in a far greater way an application to whether we should pay that poll tax, tax or not. Giving to God was due Him. Furthermore, I think that Jesus' little statement here became the foundation of Peter's teaching on the role of government and Paul's teaching on the real role of government. Paul said it this way. See if you can hear. He said, Romans 13.7, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It's like verbatim, exactly what Jesus says. Give to all. If the taxes there, you give your taxes to the government. But God, you give to God what is properly God's. Peter said it this way, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, we might read that, whether to the imperial governor as one in authority, or to governors is sent by Him for the punishment of evildoers to the praise of the ones who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the King. Now, that is really amazing about honoring the King. Do you know who the king was at the time when Peter wrote that? It was Nero. And do you remember what Nero did? He torched Christians. He would, he would take them, smother them in tar so they'd burn well. 
he'd put them up on nightstands and cover them all around so he'd have dinner parties to the, the light of burning Christians. And Peter says, honor Caesar Augustus. For those of you who have difficulty honoring our president, I would just encourage it's way easier to honor our president than it is Caesar Augustus Nero. Well, we have two great applications from this text, right? Render to Washington the things that are Washington's. Render to God the things that are God's. So how are you doing? Are you rendering to Washington the things that are Washington's? Right? I mean, the obvious application here is you pay your taxes. Or do you cheat? I mean, that's, that's obvious. Uh, right? Do you take cash for jobs and fail to report it? Or do you report it? How about this? Do you pay the use tax? This is the tax I hate most about preparing my taxes. Do you know what the use tax is? Since 1955, Illinois Assembly passed the use tax law. Use tax is sale tax, and I'm just reading from the government website, that you as the purchaser owe on items used for business use that you buy for use in Illinois. If the seller does not collect 6.25% sales tax, you must pay the difference in, to the Illinois Department of Revenue. The most common purchases in which the seller does not collect Illinois use tax are those may have the internet from a mail order catalog or made when traveling outside of Illinois. You must keep your receipts and make those type of purchases. The idea of this is to level the playing field, right? So we don't go across the border and buy things cheaply there and then bring it here into Illinois without with paying a difference in price so they can reduce that difference in tax, they can reduce that price. I mean, that's, that's the intent of it. And so I, I hate tracking all the free tax internet purchases we make. It takes a lot of time. Only then to pay 6.25% on all my purchases. But it's a law. It's required. We pay. Are you paying your, your use tax? It's a tax we're told to pay. In fact, so many people in Illinois don't pay this tax that in 2010, the Illinois General Assembly issued a use tax amnesty. You can pay back taxes without penalty or interest. Because so many people don't even pay this tax. Do you pay it? Render tax to whom tax. It's the law. Do you give it to Washington in other ways? Election coming up, do you vote? You don't have to, obviously, but voting is encouraged. It's a freedom that we have. If you don't use that freedom, then don't complain. You didn't vote. Or do you help the government accomplish its job? You volunteer, you clean up, or do you litter? Do you help where, where you can? Or are you a pain in the neck to the government? Do you honor those in authority? Thankfully, in our country, we have means of protest. Right? If they'd have protested in Rome, they'd have just been impaled upon a cross. All right? We can protest and we are, are safe and okay. We may get thrown into prison if we do it inappropriately. But if we do it appropriately, we can do it. If we protest with honor, we can do that. And I would encourage you to do that. This is right and appropriate. You may not agree with our president, but you honor our president. You submit to government officials, right? How do you treat policemen? Do you obey the laws? Or are you always just stretching the truth a little bit? Stretching the law a little bit? When Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's meaning all these things. Let us be model citizens at Rock Valley Bible Church. Second, how are you doing in terms of giving to God the things that are God's? So what is God's? Pretty much everything, okay? Psalm 24, verse 1. 
The earth is the Lord and all the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. God calls us to give everything to him. Now, especially true of, of believers, right? By faith in Jesus, we have been forgiven of our sin. We are like prisoners who have been set free. And God is the one who set us free. Therefore, what do we do? We we owe all our freedom to God. As uh, I think it's Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my all. God, God if even if I had all of nature to give to you, that that would be too small of a gift to give in light of your great grace to me. So render to God the things that are God. We owe God our lives. You've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God calls us to glorify God in our bodies. Where once we were slaves of sin, now we are slaves to righteousness. We've been freed from our sin and have been freed from our sin by faith in Christ. We are now enslaved to God. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says it this way, He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's so why Jesus calls us to lose our lives. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, right? to be right with God, we need to forsake everything in this life. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Put it away, because give everything to God. And that, that's Jesus' call here. And the Gospel we've sung about today. right? All I have is Christ. Alleluia. That's all I have. All I can do is give it to Him. That's why we are reading this book, Radical, by David Platt and our small groups. We are just challenging our lives to say, are we giving to God the things that are God's? That's what we're trying to do in our small groups. If you're not there, I encourage you to come. We have one meeting at the Hook's house tonight, right? What time? Five for dinner, six for study. So come. You get a free book if you come. It's okay. The church has bought it. Um, come. Render to God the things that are God's. Well, there's the first question. Let's try to be trapped in, right? And notice how they tried to trap Jesus with regard to the taxes. They tried to... Get Jesus to indict Himself. To stir the government to destroy Him or to stir the people to revolt against Him. Well, that didn't work. So, round two, actually round three of four, here comes question number, whatever, four. Authority first, taxes, and now theology or the resurrection or is my second point. And the point here is to make Jesus look silly and stupid and ignorant. He can't answer a Bible question. And thereby giving people a reason to abandon Jesus in His teaching because He can't get everything straight. That's the idea here. Verse 18, Some Sadducees, parenthetically, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning Him. Well, here we are introduced to a group called the Sadducees. As it says here, they are um, those who say there is no resurrection. It's the distinctive characteristic about them. But they were the theological liberals of the day. They were the rationalists, they were the deists, they were the, the skeptics. It's an easy way to remember how the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, right? You remember how, right? Because if you didn't believe in the resurrection, you'd be Sadducee, right? 
So these are Sadducees. Don't ever forget that. These are Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but they didn't believe in everything that came with that, right? The eternality of the soul. They didn't believe in a final judgment. They were very earthy people. They were deists, rationalists. They were the, the skeptics, right? Denying the supernatural, denying angels, denying the existence of Satan. And regarding Scripture, they, they denied the oral tradition, which was a good thing. All the Pharisees had the Bible, and then they compiled on top of that all the oral tradition, and then they quoted the oral, oral tradition and lost the Bible in the midst of the haystack. So they denied that, but, but they continued to go to deny most of the Old Testament. These Sadducees did. They denied everything except the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they held only to them. Now, let me tell you, there's plenty of Sadducees in our world today. Those who don't accept the supernatural, who will only believe what they can see and touch, who will go soft in the Bible and hard on their own intellectual capacities. These were rationalists. And such people like that today love unanswerable questions. They ask questions like this, how did Cain get his wife? Or how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Or... Is God all-powerful? Yes, He is. Well, then can God make a stone so heavy that He can't lift it? Right? In fact, I remember playing basketball one time with a man who was totally ungodly. He just didn't have a care in the world for God. And the first thing he starts talking to me about is 1 Corinthians 11 and head coverings for women. It's like that was the biggest issue. You know, he's just a skeptic. He just caught something that's a difficult passage to understand and interpret. And he starts going after that jugular. Well, here's the question of these skeptics. They say, Teacher. Sound familiar? A little flattery action coming there. They made out like they had a genuine asking about a question. Right? Instead, they gave him a riddle which couldn't be answered. It's probably a question that had been asked by the Sadducees to the Pharisees on other occasions as well. Nobody was able to answer it. Let's see how Jesus does. Here's the riddle. Teacher. Moses wrote for us, and again, these people believed in Moses, so that was a good thing, but they took the Scriptures and they just used it to distort. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children. And the third likewise, and so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Little puzzle. Little trick. This is coming from Deuteronomy 25. As he quotes right there in verse 19, he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.5, which explains that if a, if a husband and wife are married and the husband dies... Well, then it's the brother's duty then to marry this wife of this woman so that she might raise up offspring and so the name might continue on, might not be blotted out. The dead brother's name might not be blotted out from Israel. And for those who refuse such a duty, I'm not sure why they didn't quote this part of it, but Deuteronomy 25, 9 says, if he says, no, I won't do it, here's what happens to him. It's not good. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of all the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Can you imagine that? As a woman comes along and rips his sandal off and spits in his face, and then she declares this. She says, Thus is to be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. 
Uh, curse upon curse. The house of him who's only got one sandal. Well, that's the case set before Jesus. This obscure law in the Old Testament. There's a woman married to a man with seven brothers. The first died childless. So the second one performed his duty and took her as a wife. And the, he died and childless. And then the third one, and he died childless. And Now, I can understand why the second man would, would marry. And, and I can even understand why the third one would marry. But by the time you get down to the fourth or fifth, you've got to have serious questions, right? Um, I, might, I might go to the spice counter and see if arsenic is in there at all, figuring that there's something wrong here. But, but her reputation for love is, is really good, right? She was loving her husbands to death, right? And, and reputation was that she was quite a cook because she made a killer casserole. We laugh and joke in the right way because this question is so absurd. Surely concocted. Surely was fiction. But they brought up the fiction so as to bring an absurd conclusion. Right? Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife shall she be? She was... All seven had married her. And I'm sure at this point, the Pharisees thought they had Jesus right where they wanted Him. Is there polyandry in heaven? Is that how it works, Jesus? You could equally add to the question about divorce and remarriage. How's God going to sort that out in eternity? You have multiple wives, multiple husbands all at the same time. How's that all going to work out? The response that Jesus gives is so masterful. Just like this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Hear this riddle answered for the first time. Right? Straight forward. He says this. He said to them, first of all, putting his finger on them, He says, is this not the reason you're mistaken? You do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. And there he's just nailing them. They don't understand what the Bible teaches. Some, because faulty, they don't have the whole Bible. But some, they don't even understand what they have. And fundamentally, they don't understand the power of God. Notice how he hits the issue of understanding. He says, you guys are rationalists, but you don't understand. You don't think correctly on this thing. It's a subtle attack at them. These who are the aristocracy, who thought they were so smart, he says, you guys are stupid. You don't understand these things. First of all, they didn't understand the Scriptures. The, the resurrection has surely been discussed with the Pharisees. Uh, I'm sure this was a, a common debate uh, between them. And the Pharisees surely pointed out verses in Scripture that talk about the resurrection, like Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon your Holy One to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Right? That just means that your Holy One's going to die, but He's not going to decay. Rather, Christ is going to raise from the dead. Or Job 19, verse 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Even after my skin is destroyed, I die, yet in my flesh I'm going to see God. I'm going to be raised again with flesh. Or Isaiah 26, 19, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. Or say Ezekiel 37, In the vision of the dead bones, the bones will come to life. It's teaching of a resurrection. Or Daniel 2, 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust in the ground will awake. These to everlasting life and the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But just talking about those who are in the dust of the ground, those who have died, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, they're dust now, but they will rise again and the judgment will come either to life or to death. But 
None of these quotes come from the Pentateuch, so they didn't have any validity with the Sadducees. But Jesus said, you don't understand the Scriptures. Second, He said, you don't understand the power of God. Fundamentally, their problem with the Sadducees was one of belief. They were materialists, believed only what they saw, denied the supernatural, and they believed that the resurrection made some insurmountable problems for God to, cause, for, for God to solve. The resurrection just causes all types of problems it's way too big for God because you got this woman with seven husbands. Which husband is going to be in heaven? It's too big a problem for God to solve. Resurrection can't be. Well, here's Jesus' response after nailing them on their problem. He says, verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, assuming the resurrection, when they rise from the dead, the resurrection will happen. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And once you realize that, then the whole question of marriage in heaven crumbles. It says marriage in heaven, non-issue. That's how God solves the problem. There's just no marriage in heaven. Right? Question, which one's wife will she be? Answer, bad answer, no marriage in heaven. Now, that's not to say there won't be male and female in heaven. I believe there will be. It's not to say there won't be relationships in heaven. I believe there will be. It's not to say that you won't know your spouse in heaven. I believe you will. It's that we won't be paired up with one another in marriage. There's no need. Remember in Genesis 2, it says it's not good for a man to be alone. Here while we're on earth, in the flesh, not in glory with God, it's good for us to be paired up, man and woman, bound together for life. But not in heaven. Because the relationship that we enjoy with the Lord Jesus will far encompass anything we've known on earth and will far, do far more to replace our marital love that we don't need that. Without death in heaven, there's no need to reproduce. We don't need marriage in heaven. And also, here by the way, notice the subtlety of Jesus' answer here. They're neither marriage nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Ding! Angels exist, guys. They denied angels too. He's just kind of subtly attacking them. The realities of angels are right there. And then, Jesus proves the resurrection from the Pentateuch. The very books that they would accept. He says, okay, you guys don't understand the Scriptures. Okay, you throw out all the proofs the Pharisees give you. Let me use your own tools and let me show you that the resurrection is a reality. Verse 26. But, regarding the fact that the dead are raised, will rise again, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus takes them back to Exodus chapter 3 and the Lord appears to Moses. Remember, Moses had been born up Pharaoh's son, adopted son, became king. And then by murdering an Egyptian who was persecuting the Hebrews, identifying the Hebrew people, he had to flee for his life. He's in Midian. Well, at the end of Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel were crying out to God and God heard their cry and remembered their covenant and so appeared to Moses there at Midian and he appeared by this bush that was burning. But it wasn't being consumed. And so Moses went and looked and investigated this marvelous sight and then God called to him from the midst of the bush. He says, yeah, I got your attention. He says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. And then God says, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And then He said this quote that Jesus quoted, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, I am the God of your father, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And Jesus, by quoting that verse, says, Okay, guys, did you notice the tense of the verb that God used in this passage? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am their God. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, God is still the God of Abraham. God is still the God of Isaac. God is still the God of Jacob. They are still alive and well, even though at this time, hundreds of years earlier, they had lived and died. Abraham, 2000 B.C. Moses, 1400 B.C. 600 years. Abraham lived a long time, so maybe he died. 1900, 1800. By the time you get to Jacob. But still, hundreds of years before, they're still alive. Even the books of Moses teach the resurrection. And then he says, you, Sadducees, are greatly mistaken. You who pride yourself in your intellectual abilities... You who only believe what you can reason in your mind, you are wrong. Think about this reason. Think about the tense of that verb. And Jesus silences the the Sadducees. And then we come with two points of application for us, right? Do you understand the Scriptures? And do you understand the power of God? Do you understand the Scriptures? Do you understand that every word in this book has been inspired by God? Every single word And you can argue the truth of the word based upon the tense of a verb. That's what Jesus does. You can argue on whether something is singular or plural like Paul does in Galatians 3. He does not say seeds, that's referring to many, but to one seed, that is, to Christ. You can take the word of God and believe it totally as trustworthy. Do you believe the scriptures? Do you believe all of them? And, particularly here, when it comes to the resurrection, do you believe the Scriptures when they teach about the resurrection from the dead? Scriptures teach the resurrection is a reality. And with the resurrection, then naturally comes the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, right? The whole judgment, living in the dead, standing before the throne of God. Revelation 20 describes the scene... I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. The great and small just meaning big ones and little ones and and grand ones and powerful ones and weak ones. Another book was opened. So the books were opened. Another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, everyone according to the deeds. Everyone has been cast off at sea, died on a ship, buried at sea, brought up. Anyone who's in the tomb, brought up. Everybody who's ever lived will be raised from the dead to stand before Christ. Then death and Hades were thrown into hell, the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, his, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life, the name of the book of life is the only way to escape the lake of fire. Two camps of people, those in the book and those in the other books. 
Lord Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats. Final judgment, everyone's resurrected to life. The sheep on his right, the goats on his left. The sheep's to everlasting life and the goats to everlasting torment. That is a reality of the resurrection. The resurrection says that we will live forever. It's a matter where we're going to go. For those who have trusted Jesus, they'll be with Him forever. Those who have trusted themselves, their own wisdom, their own understanding, their own righteousness, will be in hell. It's the reality of the resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if He dies. It's the reality of the resurrection to escape the terrors of hell, we just believe in Jesus. And how wonderful that is. We just really call upon His name and we're free. And if any of you don't call on His name, you're to blame. You've heard it so many times before. Everyone who shall confess Me before men, I also will confess before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny Me before men, I also will deny my before My Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So confess Him because you believe what the Scriptures speak. It's clear on this. I mean, what I've said is just one of the foundational just from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Right? We're eternal beings. We're created to live for God's glory. We've fallen in our sin. There's a day we'll give an account. Either we believe and trust in Christ He'll bring us into His kingdom or we reject Him and we'll go to what we want anyway, a life of rejecting God. Well, do you understand the Scriptures? How about do you understand the power of God? It's the problem with the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the power of God. The power of God to raise somebody from the dead. I admit it's difficult to believe. Okay, I mean, because dead people just don't come to life. I've not seen that happen. I've read about it. Right? The widow's son, the Old Testament, was an instance. Um, Lazarus was raised from the dead. John chapter 11. Um, when Jesus died upon the cross, some people raised from the dead as well. There have been some resurrections from the dead, but they are... Few and far between. I've not seen anybody, I don't think you've seen anybody raised from the dead. Um, these books about, I was dead, I went to heaven, I've come back. Uh, their descriptions of heaven don't match this book, okay? I doubt they went to heaven and came back. If they came, went to heaven and came back, all they'd be talking about is the crucified lamb, which everybody's worshiping, Right? Why then do we think it remarkable if God raises someone from the dead? It's hard to believe, right? But think about this. If God gives life in the first place, don't you think that He can do it again? I mean, the reality and complexities of life, surely God started life. We didn't evolve. God started it. And as Jeremiah 32, verse 16 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, You've made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and Your stretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for You and nothing includes the resurrection from the dead. I mean, listen, to create from nothing is incredible. When you think about it, about this world and how vast it is and, and what God has done to, to create us, it must have been created by one so unlike us. I mean, the universe is so unbelievable. It speaks about the power of God. In the grand scheme of things, think about how puny we are. We, we live 70 or 80 years, according to Psalm 90. And there are billions of us who live on the earth. And our earth is but a small planet inside our solar system. And... And there's some 200 billion such solar systems in our galaxy. And our galaxy is one of trillions of galaxies across this universe. And God created all in six days, speaking into existence. And as Job says, it was just the fringes of His ways. Just a little, little flick of His pinky did that. And, that that's, and if God can do that, can God raise someone from the dead? 
The power needed to resurrect a body is nothing compared to this. We need to think afresh the question, why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? That's the debate. Acts 23. That's the very question that Paul asked. When there are Pharisees and Sadducees in the room, he wanted to divide the room for his own safety. He said, why is it incredible? I'm here for the testimony of the resurrection from the dead. Put the Pharisees on his side. Put them against the, the Sadducees. They started fighting each other. And, and Paul exited out the back door. Why is it considered to be incredible that God would raise people from the dead? If you believe in the power of God, the resurrection naturally and easily follows. Now, exactly what happens after the resurrection of the dead may be fuzzy in your mind. That's fine. But the fact that God is able to resurrect from the dead ought not to be a question for you if you understand and believe and trust in the power of God. So I just say this, church family, let us believe the Scriptures and let us believe the power of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, much here to apply in our lives. That's for sure. I pray we would render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. God, give us a a testimony here of people who do right and suffer for it. God, when, when unjust people ridicule us and persecute us and we continue on joyful and happy, knowing that we've been kind of worthy to suffer for Christ, or in fact, we've done no wrong. Help us, O Lord, to render to You what is Yours. God, give us a a vision and clarity about who and who You are that we would willingly forsake all of our life and follow You. Help us, O Lord, to understand and believe the Scriptures. Every single word of them, as Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Not one dot on an I, not one cross on a T will pass away. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is established in heaven. Psalm 119 says, O Lord. So I pray we would believe the Bible, believe the resurrection, and help us, O Lord, to believe in the power of God. How insane it is for us to believe in our own authority rather than Your authority, seeing how grand and powerful You are. Oh, Father, so I pray that You'd stir in our hearts with You and Your your greatness and Your glory. God, mold us into the image of Your Son. Teach us to more love Jesus because of these ways in which He answered. He is, um, not only the God-man, not only walked in righteousness, He was brilliant. He had the perfect mind, untainted by sin, and could answer any question that was brought to Him with clarity, succinctness, and with incredible depth. Oh God, help us to long for the Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.